0: Okay, uh, it's 11 o'clock. We've got to start right on the button, because I have about four hours of material. Um, actually, I'm going to combine basically two seminars that I do um, into one, so to speak, uh, because they only gave me one. So um, we need to get started. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your many blessings to us. We thank you in particular for the salvation that you have granted to us. We pray, Father, that you would help us to, uh, in this particular hour, um, help us to look at things and to be willing to accept truth when we see it. Uh, and we ask that you keep us in a good spirit uh, and that we would honor you in all that we do. Amen. Okay, so if you don't know me, I'm Dr. Greg Fraser. Um, I teach, I'm a professor of history and political studies at the Masters University. Um, and I 'm also a Deacon here at Grace Community Church, uh, and I 'm one of the part of the leadership group in the Sojourners Fellowship group. All right, um, So the religious beliefs of key American founders, why the world are we doing that at Grace Church on the Sundays in July? Uh, because it matters. Um, the proper view uh, that is the truth of, about the religious views of key American founders has impact for us today, beyond just mere um, curiosity. And much of that is in the handout that you should have received. If you didn't receive a handout, we have a bunch of extras. Uh, So just raise your hand, and someone will put one in it. Um, So several years ago, here's why I'm doing this here. Several years ago, Dr. MacArthur came to my office at the university, the only time in the 30 years that he and I were both there that he came to my office. After having read my book on the religious beliefs of key American founders, he expressed a desire that everyone at Grace Community Church hear the presentation on the subject. As he left my office, he asked for a copy of a handout, the one that you're holding right now. He asked for that copy. Several fellowship groups allowed me to make this presentation. Some of them gave me three or four Sundays, which was outstanding. Um, Some of them gave me one, some of them gave me two, but I've spoken a number of fellowship groups. He also arranged for me to to do a seminar at the Shepherds Conference that year, uh, and he bought a copy of my book for each member of the university's board of directors. Now, why am I saying all that? Because, like Steve Lawson, I have no humility. (laughs) No, it's to tell you that I have Dr. MacArthur's blessing... So if you don't like what I say, complain to Dr. MacArthur, or complain, go to the graves of the Founding Fathers and complain to them, as you're going to see why I say that. Because there are so many people relatively new to Grace Church, and John wanted everybody to hear it, it's time to do this presentation again, which I've done multiple times in the past. Now let me begin by saying this. Everybody listen to this, everybody get this, okay? If you don't hear anything else, well, no, I shouldn't say that, because I want you to hear the rest, but... (laughs) I feel very blessed to have been born in and to live in the United States of America. I believe it's the greatest and best country in human history with the best political system ever devised by man. And I teach political studies. That's what I do. I would not want to live in any other country on earth. Sorry, Rebecca. But the United States is not perfect. It was created by and is run by fallen people. Like everything else on planet Earth. Regarding religion and the American founding, my contention is that both, see, you're looking at me, the right and the left are wrong in their views of the religious beliefs of America's founders. The left says that most of the founders were deists or ranked secularists who intended to completely separate religion from public life. That is false. If, you can find one or possibly two deists, depending on how far down the list of founding fathers you want to go. There's a big debate, by the way, over who counts as a founding father. And if you go into the late dozens into the hundreds, you can find one or two deists, and that's it. And they definitely did not want a wall of separation between church and state. What the court has done there is goofy. Now... The right says that most of the founders were Christians who based the founding documents on the Bible and intended to create a Christian nation. That is also false. There were, everybody hear this, if you're a Christian American person, there were Christians among the founding fathers. Right? There were Christians among the founding fathers. But the key founders, the ones who were most responsible for the for the two founding documents, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, the ones who were entrusted with running the system from the beginning, including the first four presidents, and so on, were not Christians. My desire is for you to see, for the most part, what they themselves said, so that you don't have to take my word for it. This PowerPoint is critically important, because you're going to see all I've done, basically, is t- show you what they said. Not giving you my own opinion or whatever. It's what they said. If you don't like it, go to them. Okay? I emphasize, by the way, what they said in private. What they said in diaries, journals, and especially personal correspondence. I have an assumption. Every writer has assumptions. In my book, one of the things that's different is, in the beginning of the book, I spent about three or four pages giving my assumptions. Every writer has assumptions. Usually they just assume that you'll agree with them. I lay out my assumptions. One of my assumptions is people will be more honest in what they tell you privately than what they'd say publicly, especially politicians. <laughs> and what politicians say in public, which is often trumpeted by certain people... Is for the public's benefit what they say in private is what they really believe and what they really think especially when they tell you after you read this burn it (laughs) which happened on numerous occasions so I emphasize what they said in private rather than public pronouncements made for political purposes one sees what someone really believes in what they say privately and do not expect the public to see I apologize in advance that we will move very quickly Uh, there's just no other way around it. I already spent more time on the introduction than I wanted to. So, let's look at what the key American founders said that they believed. And by the way, when you hear people make statements to you about the religious beliefs of the founders, and they say, the founding fathers believed, then you should stop listening. Because the founding fathers were individuals who each had their own beliefs. They weren't a conglomerate. We think of them as a conglomerate. Like they were all together, and they all agreed on everything, and they certainly didn't. If you just look at the Constitutional Convention notes, you'll see that. But you can't say the Founding Fathers believed unless you're quoting the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution. That's all they agreed upon, and some of them didn't agree with that. and Some of them didn't sign the documents because they didn't agree with it. So... Be leery when someone tells you the founders believed or the founders said. Okay, I'm going to try and say all the way through, the key founders believed. And the key founders said. I'm only making claims fundamentally about eight people. Okay? Um, however, those eight people created the documents that everybody else signed on to. And they were the movers and shakers the people who spoke the most at the convention, the people who headed up the committees, and so on and so forth. All right, so let's get started. Um, well, let's, let's back myself up somewhere here. This is Dr. MacArthur, and in, in, uh, you can find this on the website, Christian and Politics Part 4. He quotes this guy, John Peel, who says, Rather than acting as resident aliens of a heavenly kingdom, too often we sound and act like resident apologists for a Christian America. Unless we reject the false reliance on the illusion of Christian America, evangelicalism will continue to distort the gospel and thwart a genuine biblical identity. The sheet that I handed out to you lists a number of reasons why I believe the Christian America view is dangerous. It's not just wrong, although I think it's wrong, but it's also dangerous and we may highlight some of those at the end but mostly i'm going to give you the evidence for the conclusions that are on that sheet and then you can meditate on the sheet later for the most part all right who are who am i talking about the key american founders those who are most responsible for the declaration of independence thomas jefferson who was the primary author john adams and benjamin franklin who were also on the declaration committee and made changes Uh, Many people don't know that the the committee made 48 changes in Jefferson's original draft of the Declaration, including taking out his strong statement against slavery. That was in the original, and they pulled that out because they wanted the southern states to sign it. Same thing in the Constitution. The reason the Constitution made certain compromises was to get everybody on board. So anyway, those three. Then those who are most responsible for the Constitution and for putting it into effect, which is James Madison, who is wrongly called the father of the Constitution, by the way, Alexander Hamilton, George Washington, of course, the 500-pound gorilla in the room, Governor Morris, who is really the father of the Constitution, but you don't know who he is, because when Alexander Hamilton asked him to write the Federalist Papers with him, he said no. Otherwise, he would be arguably more famous than James Madison, although Madison became a president, but there's a lot of presidents that aren't that famous. Um, anyway, Governor Morris, who spoke more than did anyone else at the convention, and James Wilson, who had a, uh, as much as anybody to do with how the court structured in the Constitution and the presidency, and so on. Uh, in 2019, I spoke at a conference in Washington, D.C. My wife and I went, as we always do, and we're back there, to the National Archives, to once again view original copies of the Constitution Declaration, and you may those of you who have been there, you may note that there's about a dozen or so or more uh, documents that are there. And what they've done recently is, with each of the documents, although they're unrelated to those documents, they have highlighted a founding father on each of them. And of my eight people, in the first eight stations, seven of my eight people are there in case you're wondering if these are influential people. The one who isn't is Benjamin Franklin, one of the most famous of them all. All right, so these are the people I'm talking about in, in general, uh, although there are others as well. All right, let's start with John Adams. John Adams, almost everybody says John Adams was a Christian Christian. Uh, Even the the, uh, secularists who believe most of the founders were deists and whatnot, most of them say John Adams was a Christian, but some of them say he was a deist. He wasn't either of those things. Um, But I like to start with him because there's more or less a consensus among those who don't pay much attention, again, from other scholars, that he was a Christian. All right. So let's see what he says. He referred to the deity of Christ and his satisfaction for the sins of man as an absurdity. That's a nice start, as as we come out of the Grace Community Church service. (laughs) Jesus Christ, that Dr. Lawson has just talked to us about as being God, Adam said that was an absurdity, And as well as his satisfaction for the sins of man, that thing we just celebrated. As for the Trinity... He said the Pythagorean, as well as the Platonic philosophers, probably concurred in the fabrication of the Christian trinity. He did not believe in the trinity. Obviously, he's already said the deity of Christ is an absurdity. doesn't believe in the, in the trinity. But notice Pythagorean. Those of, you, those of you who remember your grade school days, you might remember Pythagoras, who was involved with triangles. Right? Three. So, Um, he says he probably concurred in fabricating the Christian trinity. I think this one's really ironic and sad because notice the date. It is Christmas Day when he writes this to Thomas Jefferson. This is, okay, I've studied this for nearly 40 years, um, and I have 900 and some footnotes in my book this is the saddest, or no, it isn't. It's the most outrageous statement anyone I ever found. The most outrageous statement I ever found. See if you agree. He said to Jefferson, Had you and I been 40 days with Moses on Mount Sinai and admitted to behold the divine Shekinah, in other words, God, and they're told that three was, three was one and one was three, we might not have had the courage to deny it, but we could not have believed it. We could not have believed the doctrine. We should be more likely to say in our hearts, whatever we might say with our lips, this is chance, there is no God, no truth, this is all delusion, fiction, and a lie, or it is all chance. If God himself told Adams the Trinity was true, he would not believe it. That's what he's saying. That's pretty straightforward. He wrote to his son, an incarnate God, an eternal, self-existent, omnipresent, omniscient author of this stupendous universe suffering on a cross, my soul starts with horror at the idea, and it has stupefied the Christian world. It has become the source of almost all the corruptions of Christianity. Jesus becoming God and suffering on the cross, what we just celebrated again, has become been the source of almost all the corruptions of Christianity. Now, this term, corruptions of Christianity, we're going to bump into again, because he borrows it from a friend, a guy named Joseph Priestley. Joseph Priestley, some of you might know, is credited as the inventor of oxygen, or the discoverer of oxygen. was it actually oxygen, but anyway, essentially. So, but he was also a preacher, who denied basically all the fundamentals of the faith, he wrote a two-volume work called The History of the Corruptions of Christianity. It starts with the deity of Christ, and then it goes into uh, original sin, and basically all the doctrines of Christianity, and he goes into why those are all false, and these are the corruptions of Christianity. And he influenced heavily Adams and Jefferson, um, and Franklin also refers to him periodically, Whenever Adams and Jefferson had a, had a religious question, they would always say, well, we'll ask Priestley." That's their, their main source. So that's the, this corruptions of Christianity is, a, is an important phrase, and we're going to come back to that. Uh, what about the Bible? What do you think about the Bible? Philosophy, which is the result of reason, is the first, the original revelation of the Creator to His creature, man. No subsequent revelation, supported by prophecies or miracles, what would that be, can supersede it. This is another one on Christmas Day. Philosophy, the result of reason, is the revelation of God to man, and the Bible cannot supersede it. But, he says, the Bible is the most Republican book in the world, and therefore I will still revere it. Now, he's not, it's not a Republican with a capital letter, those of you who are party members. It's referring to this, the system of government and, and the notion, no, certain notions in Republican thought. But that's why he will still revere it. He also, by the way, believed... I don't have a slide for this, because I, I don't have a slide, for, room for everything. He also believed that much of the Bible had been destroyed and was missing. Um, he, he actually said cartloads of... Um, Scrolls. I don't know how you knew that, but anyway, that's what he believed. What about theology? He said the preamble to the laws of Zeleucus, which were supposedly handed down from the goddess Athena, is as orthodox as Christian theology as priestlies with whom Adams identified. So the laws of Zeleucus, supposedly handed down by pagan goddess Athena. Is as orthodox as Christian theology in his mind. Although, since he's identifying with Priestley, I probably would agree with him. They are equally orthodox, but that isn't what he's saying, because he agreed with Priestley. Where is to be found theology more orthodox or philosophy more profound than in the introduction to the Shastra, which is a Hindu text? These doctrines, sublime if ever there were sublime, Pythagoras learned in India, taught them to Zaleucus and his other disciples, all ended in heaven if they became virtuous. Now this is the key thing here. For these key founders, uh, who I call theistic rationalists, we'll get there later, one of the fundamental views is, like deism, uh, the way you get to heaven is by being virtuous, by being good. And so uh, all of these guys, Pythagoras and Zalukas and the Hindus and so on, they all end in heaven if they are virtuous. He said, My religion is founded upon the love of God and my neighbor, the duty of doing no wrong but all the good I can. I believe, too, in a future state of rewards and punishments, but not eternal. Now, the, the key founders held different views concerning hell. Most of them believed in it, uh, but they didn't think it was eternal. They believed that people who were bad went to hell for a while. It's sort of like the Catholic view of what? Yeah. Uh, where you go for a while, you get some, punished a little bit, and then Jesus takes you on into heaven. And he said, flat out, I believe that all good men are Christians. All good men are Christians. And we're going to see more of this as well. He said, placing all religion in grace and its offspring faith is anti-Christianity. Our church is misnamed, according to Adams. He said to his wife, wrote to his wife, My religion, you know, is not exactly conformable to that of the greatest part of the Christian world. It excludes superstition. Most of the Christian world is engulfed in superstition. All right, let's turn to Thomas Jefferson. Now, to be fair, most people in Thomas Jefferson's day thought he was an infidel. Uh, when he ran for president, there was whole campaigns about we can't have an infidel as president. That led to the unfortunate uh, statement in the in the letter that he wrote, which the Supreme Court grabbed out of nowhere and tossed in and created our separation of church and state thing. Um, But most people at the time viewed him as an infidel. So why do I include him? I include him because he wrote the Declaration of Independence. He was the primary author. And because he and Adams exchanged letters for years years and years and years and constantly said to one another, I believe all the same things you do. Um, In particular, they had really, really nasty things to say about Calvinists. Uh, At one point, Jefferson said, uh, when he was wishing Adams good health, he said that, I hope you remain healthy until I become a a Calvinist, because that would make you immortal. Um, But anyway, aside from that, let's see what Jefferson had to say. About the Trinity, he said, "...the metaphysical insanities of Athanasius of Loyola and of Calvin are, to my understanding, mere relapses into polytheism." The Trinity is polytheism for him. And Athanasius, who introduced Trinity into a major uh, church statement, uh, is uh, relapsing into polytheism. He said, "...when we shall have done away with the incomprehensible jargon of the Trinitarian arithmetic..." The three are one and one is three, then we'll be able to make progress and blah, 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 blah. And he said, the hocus-pocus phantasm of a god like another Cerberus with one body and three heads. Those of you who aren't up on your ancient Greek mythology, uh, and ancient Roman mythology too, for that matter, the Cerberus was a hound at the f- entrance to hell, and the hound had three heads, so you could see in each direction. And um, Jefferson equates this mythological notion of a trinity with that Greek mythology. And not only that, but how about the virgin birth? And the day will come when the mystical generation of Jesus, by the supreme being as his father in the womb of a virgin, will be classed with the fable of the generation of Minerva in the brain of Jupiter. So if you're not up on your ancient Roman uh, mythology... um, And and Greek too. It's a mixture. Um, He's mixing them here because Minerva's Roman. Well, anyway, Um, supposedly Jupiter's wife is pregnant. Jupiter, the king of the gods, his wife is pregnant, and he doesn't want to have a child, so he swallows his wife, and then his daughter Minerva bursts out of the side of his brain. She's born and kind of like you've seen the alien movie. You know, anyway. Um, he says that's equivalent to the notion of the virgin birth. It's mythology. Now, here's this phrase again. He says, "...to the corruptions of Christianity I am indeed opposed, but not to the genuine precepts of Jesus himself. I am a Christian, in the only sense in which he wished anyone to be, sincerely attached to his doctrines, his doctrines, in preference to all others." ascribing to himself every human excellence and believing he never claimed any other. All right, so there's a lot to unpack here. We can spend 20 minutes, but we won't. The corruptions of Christianity, another reference to the priestly notion. Um, Jefferson liked Jesus. That is, the moral teaching Jesus. And when Jefferson created his own Bible, he took a copy of the New Testament literally, and took a razor blade or scissors, the guy who, if the guy who's, uh, who stalks me if he's listening to this, oh, okay, a razor blade, I don't care. Um, he cut. He cut up the New Testament and cut out all the miracles and anything supernatural and pasted it back together. Literally, we have the copies. Literally pasted it back together. You could buy it at the store today. It's called the Jefferson Bible. And... Um, So he liked Jesus, his moral teachings, and that's what he believed Christianity was, or should be, Jesus' moral teachings. He says here, I am a Christian. People in the Christian America camp will take, what they'll do is is take dot, 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 I am a Christian, dot, dot, dot. See, Jefferson claimed to be a Christian. Okay, you got to watch for dot, dot, dots. Those are called ellipses. Now, I've used them already. I'm going to use more of them. But the rule, if you're going to be intellectually honest with ellipses, is you can't... Ellipses means you've taken something out. You left something out. And you usually do it for space purposes, things that aren't important. The rule concerning ellipses is you don't take out anything that changes the meaning of the overall statement. Okay, Uh, And so... Uh, often they will just say, I am a Christian, dot, 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 Thomas Jefferson. Uh, Well, yeah, he claimed to be a Christian under his terms. And Adams had his own notion of Christianity, and the others had their own notion of Christianity. Franklin had his notion of Christianity. And they sometimes said... I am a Christian, but they were talking about their notion of Christianity, not actual Christianity. And to go to 21st century evangelical churches or Christians and say, look, what these guys said, they're all believers, is totally dishonest. It's intellectual dishonesty. Um, notice what he's saying here. Ascribing to himself every human excellence and believing he never claimed any other. or In other words, that Jesus never claimed to be God. That's, that's fundamental to his view. As it was with Adams, denying the deity of Christ. Then, in another work, um, it's actually a letter to William Short, he lists a number of what he calls artificial systems invented by ultra Christian sects that are unauthorized by a single word ever uttered by Jesus. So, what are these artificial systems that were? Invented by ultra Christian sects that aren't real Christianity, according to Jefferson, including the Immaculate Conception of Jesus, the Virgin Birth, His de- de- deification, the creation of the world by Him, His miraculous powers, His resurrection and visible ascension, the Trinity, original sin, atonement, regeneration, election. Let's go on the Grace Community website, look at our doctrinal statement. And that's what Jefferson said were artificial systems invented by ultra-Christian sects and not real Christianity. He said, my fundamental principle would be the reverse of Calvin's, that we are to be saved by our good works, which are within our power, and not by our faith, which is not within our power. At least he understood that faith isn't within our power, so he had one thing right. Writing to his favorite nephew, um, he said, Read the Bible, then, as you would read Livy or Tacitus. Those were Roman historians. Read the Bible as you would read Livy or Tacitus. Your own reason is your only oracle given you by heaven. I call these guys theistic rationalists. That's the term that I coined for it. Theistic, they believe in God and not the deist God. They believe in a theist God, which is distinguished from the deist God. Maybe we'll talk about it later. It's on the back of the sheet. Uh, and, but fundamentally, their system was rationalism. They believed, they believed, they took things from Christianity, from natural religion and deism, and reason. And they mushed those three together. They took things that to them seemed reasonable in Christianity and natural religion and rejected what to them was irrational or unreasonable. So reason was the fundamental basis for their religion. Okay, They chose what seemed reasonable to them. In fact, they believed some of the Bible, and the, the parts they believed were the ones they thought were rational. That's why Jefferson cut up, literally, the New Testament and cut up parts of it because it wasn't rational. He got down to the part that he thought was really from God, real revelation. Dias didn't believe in any revelation from God. That's one difference between theistic rationalists and Deists. Regarding the writers of the New Testament, other than the Gospels, like, I don't know, 1 Timothy that we just looked at, these pseudo-evangelists pretended to inspiration, he says. He regularly refers to the New Testament other than the Gospels as a dunghill. Can't get much clearer than that. And what about the Apostle Paul? Of this band of dupes and imposters, Paul was the great Corapheus, the leader of the chorus, and the first corrupter of the doctrines of Jesus. What about how you get to heaven and who's there? There's not a Quaker or a Baptist, a Presbyterian or an Episcopalian, a Catholic or a Protestant in heaven. On entering that gate, we leave those badges of schism behind and find ourselves united in those principles only in which God has united us all. Let us not be uneasy then about the different roads we may pursue to that our last abode, but let us be happy in the hope that by these different paths we shall all meet in the end. Everybody goes to heaven. doesn't matter what religious views you are. Those are just badges of schism that priests have created in order to make money for themselves. So that you have five churches in your, your town instead of one. That's what Jefferson believed. I believe that he who steadily observes those moral precepts in which all religions concur will never be questioned at the gates of heaven as to the dogmas in which they all differ. They didn't like doctrines. The key founders did not like doctrines because they divided people and they took away from the, the value and the purpose of religion. And by the way, for them, religion was very important. And so when you see quotes from people talking about them, when they're talking glowingly about religion and so on and so forth, that's true. They did believe in religion. They'd pr- they promoted religion, this notion of wall of separation of church and state is goofy. That's not, a single, not a single founding father would, would adhere to it the way that the court applies it. They wanted religion in public life. They wanted religion to have an effect in, in, in politics. They promoted religion because it was a source of morality. If you're going to make people free... You're not going to have an iron fist to to make them do what you make them do, and you're going to give people freedom. How do you get them to behave? Morality. Where does morality come from? Religion. Which religion? All of them. Doesn't matter. So they believed that religion was critically important, but not necessarily Christianity. Benjamin Franklin, I'm not going to do much with him. However, this is the saddest. I mentioned earlier that Adam's quote was the most outrageous. This was the saddest quote that I've found in 40 years or so of of looking at this. Uh, By the way, uh, Franklin here is in his 80s, and he dies three months later, something like that. He was asked by Ezra Stiles, who was a Congregationalist or Baptist pastor, uh, to tell him, what do you think about Jesus? Franklin said this, As to Jesus of Nazareth, my opinion of whom you particularly desire, I think the system of morals and his religion, as he left them to us, the best the world ever saw or is likely to see. But I apprehend it has received various corrupting changes. And I have doubts as to his divinity. Though it is a question I do not dogmatize upon, having never studied it, And I think it needless to busy myself with it now when I expect soon an opportunity of knowing the truth with less trouble. (laughs) I see no harm, however, in its being believed if that belief has the good consequences of making his doctrines more respected and better observed. All right, so let's look at a couple of things. First of all, he starts out, Jesus of Nazareth. This is the way they talked about Jesus. You won't see them talking about Jesus Christ. The guy who stalks me, if you're listening... Yes, they sometimes recorded other, when other people used Jesus Christ and wrote that down, but not using it themselves. I'm sorry. <laughs> but in their, own, in their own works, their own conversation, their own correspondence, they don't talk about Jesus Christ. They talk about Jesus of Nazareth. Why? Because that emphasizes his humanity. Uh, and then he says, very, it's received various corrupting changes. Ah, the corruptions of Christianity rears its ugly head again. And he says, um, I have doubts as to his divinity. Now, this is really important for you to understand. You, When you read this stuff, which I spent much of the last 30 or so years in the 18th century, when you read their stuff, you have to understand they talk differently than we do. They wrote differently than we do. They even had those f so they're like S's and you've got to get used to reading that and so forth. But they, they also had different meanings for words. And in polite society in, this, in the 1700s, to say you ha- when you're talking with someone that you respect or that you like, that you disagree with, you would say, I have doubts about that. So when he says, I have doubts as to his divinity, he's saying, I don't believe it. I don't believe in the, in the deity of Christ. Uh, And then he says he's never studied it, and he expects to die soon, which he did. And he did find out the truth, which is, like I said, the saddest thing that I came across. Uh, But he sees no harm as long as it makes people behave and be good. he also said, All sects have experienced my goodwill in assisting them, and as I have never opposed any of their doctrines, I hope to go out of the world in peace with them all. Franklin, was one of the, Franklin would have been good, a good Japanese person. Have you ever talked with a Japanese missionary where they, they preach Christ and they, they think they've converted somebody and then they go and find that they just put a statue of Christ in with all of the other gods in their pantheon? Franklin gave money to every church in Philadelphia even built he built a church for people to preach who no one else would let pre- no one else would they let preach so and and mainly for joseph Priestley to come and preach because Priestley actually got kicked out of england they burned his house down and kicked him out because of his anyway um, so franklin gave to all the churches in town so he's basically covering all his bets whoever's right you know, it, it's sort of like the ancients. You, you bribe the gods with sacrifices, and so you sacrifice to all the gods, and so whichever god is true, you're going to get to heaven somehow. All right, let's play a game. Identify the Christian president. <laughs> Two choices, A or B. President A was a Baptist. President B, Episcopalian. President A claimed to be a Christian. President B never claimed to be a Christian. President A took communion publicly. President B refused to take communion and was publicly chastised by his minister from the pulpit for his bad example. President A had an advisory council of evangelical ministers. President B, his advisors, denied the fundamentals of Christianity. So let's talk about the 500-pound elephant or gorilla or whichever metaphor you want to use, George Washington, which both sides desperately want on their side. Both sides spend a lot of time and effort to get Washington on their side in their countless books, trying to drag him to one side or the other, but he's sitting there in my book. Unlike Adams and even Jefferson, Washington never claimed to be a Christian. We have 20,000 pages of his writings. He never claimed to be a Christian, nor did he ever claim to have a relationship with Jesus or to have been converted. Did he have a chance? On March 3rd, 1797, a group of clergymen tried to get him to affirm whether he was a Christian or not. They were frustrated when Washington refused to do so, and one of them said, the old fox was too cunning for us. Washington never took communion. Communion. And after being publicly chastised for his bad example, he never again attended on Sacrament Sunday. So he would skip all the third Sundays here at Grace Church <laughs> so that he wouldn't make a bad example of getting up and leaving before communion. Now, in his church, communion was like a separate thing, so you'd have a service, and then they'd say, okay, this is, this is Sacrament Sunday, and so stick around for communion, and then people would leave if they didn't want to do communion, and he left. Who, who says this? According to his granddaughter, Nellie Custis, who lived with the Washingtons for many moons. According to Bishop William White, who was the overseer of the local churches. And according to Dr. James Abercrombie, who was the assistant rector of Washington's church and the one who chastised him from the pulpit. He chastised him by name for not taking communion. And Washington wrote him a letter and said, said, you're quite right, Uh, it is a terrible example Uh, blah, 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 and then he just quit coming on Sacrament Sunday. Mrs. Washington stayed for communion, uh, which made it even more noticeable. Um, He spoke of Christians in the third person. Being no bigot myself to any mode of worship, I am disposed to indulge the professors of Christianity that road to heaven, which to them shall seem the most direct, plainest, easiest, and least liable to exception. All right. Now we got to talk about language again. Bigot, bigot in the 18th century just means you believe something. You have a position. Today, you know, a bigot is somebody who is racially insensitive or whatever. But then it just it, did, it had nothing to do with race necessarily. It was anything. You believe something. You you took a stand for something or you believed something. And he says, I'm, I'm, I'm not a bigot to any mode of worship. And then he talks about the professors of Christianity. That's not professors like college professors. That's people who profess. People who profess Christianity, he says, I, I'll indulge them whatever road to heaven which they think is best. He studiously avoided mentioning the name of Jesus. In 20,000 plus pages of his writings, there's only one reference to Jesus, Jesus Christ, or Christ, and that's not in his handwriting. It's in the handwriting of one of his aides, who was a Christian, by the way, and not accepted as Washington's by the Smithsonian Institute or by the Washington Papers Project. Uh, He had an aide who was a Christian, and the aide would sometimes, in his speeches, slip things in. Sometimes Washington didn't take them out, and these are things that the Christian American people like to trumpet. You know, Washington said such and such. It's never, by the way, directly Christian anyway. It's, but anyway, it's pro-God or whatever. Um, but um, we're going to see an example of that in a minute, maybe right here. Yeah. Washington always used what I call God words. That's what the theistic rationalists use. If you look at even the public documents but especially in their private writings, they used God words in place of any terms specific to Christianity, the Bible, or any other religion. Things like invisible hand and supreme ruler and so on and so forth. Things like that. God words. Um, For example, in a speech to Indian leaders written by that clerk who was a Christian, he crossed out the word God and substituted the great spirit above. Because that's what the Indians would relate to, and after all, it didn't matter to Washington. He's not a bigot to any particular type of thing. He doesn't have a, he doesn't have a horse in the race. He believes in God, but he thinks that all gods are the same, and you can call him whatever you want. Uh, he'd be one of those people today uh, that would teach at a certain other university besides the masters who would say that, uh, oh yeah, Allah is just another name for God. His use of God words and his belief that all roads lead to God are best understood when one remembers that Washington was an enthusiastic Freemason. All right, time out. (laughs) If you are a Freemason person about conspiracy theories and stuff, please don't come up to me and talk to me. There was no Freemason conspiracy to control America, etc., and you aren't going to convince me. I've seen all the evidence, quote-unquote, so just don't do it. So I'm not talking about a conspiracy here. But Washington and Franklin in particular were Freemasons, and they were Freemasons because they believed what Freemasonry taught. They weren't believing it because they wanted to be Freemasons. But what did, uh, and, and if you don't believe Washington was a Freemason, you have to explain why he laid the Capitol building cornerstone in a Masonic apron with a Masonic trowel, why his favorite portrait of himself was him in his Masonic regalia, and why the George Washington masonic memorial includes the chair of him being the master of the Alexandria Lodge of Freemasons. So what did, what did Freemasons believe? Freemasonry holds to a unitary supreme being, the so-called great architect of the universe, Godward, who denies Christ's Unique saviorship and atonement reduces religion to a moralistic observance of allegedly common ethical principles. All meet together and pray worship together to the same one and only indivisible God whom all religions acknowledge and venerate. And that's a pretty darn good description of what the theistic rationalists held to, including Washington. He also steadfastly refused to kneel in prayer. Now, you might say, okay, well, what's the big deal, man? Like, I don't kneel in prayer. That's so like last century, dude. But <laughs> well, here's why it's a big deal two things. One, the church that he attended had what were called kneeling benches because everybody kneeled in prayer. That was what they did. And here's this guy who was literally head and shoulders above the rest. One of the reasons Washington was so prominent, and along with Jefferson, they were both 6'3 in an age in which most men were 58 or below the average height was like 57 in that age and they were 63 so here's all these people kneeling in prayer and here's this 6 foot 3 guy <laughs> standing there okay why else does it matter you know that famous portrait right famous portrait of washington kneeling in prayer at valley forge in the snows all right well first of all it's problematic because he never knelt in prayer but it's more problematic because it didn't happen. The man who is supposed to have found Washington kneeling in prayer at Valley Forge, a farmer named Isaac Potts, was nowhere near Valley Forge in 1777, by his own accounting. He didn't move there till later. He moved there near the end of the war. This is one of the stories in an account in a book written by a guy named uh, Mason Locke Weems or Parson Weems. Parson Weems was a parson, a traveling preacher, who, when Washington died, saw a chance to make a big buck, and so he wrote a hagiography of Washington. You know what a hagiography is, as opposed to a biography? A hagiography is a biography in which you include all sorts of false stuff to build the person up. You say all sorts of phony stuff about it. Uh, Al Gore wrote his own hagi... I'm sorry. Um, You say a whole bunch of phony stuff in order to build the person up. And there's a lot of stories in there... Remember the cherry tree story? I'm sorry, it didn't happen. Mason Weems wanted to emphasize how honest he was, so he made it up. He also wrote a story when he was a child that his father planted the garden to spell his name in cabbages. Um, <laughs> there's a story about Indian chiefs all trying to kill Washington. This is a famous or favorite thing that's, that's uh, talked about by the Christian America advocates. Um, and it's just a Mason Locke Weems story. When my wife and I. <laughs> There's two stories, um, when my wife and I visited Mount Vernon, I made sure I carried a silver dollar with me on the trip, and, we, and I stood on the banks of the Potomac out in front of Washington's house, and I went like this, and I had my wife take a picture of me with the Potomac behind, because Mason Locke Weems said that Washington threw a silver dollar across the Potomac, which is a mile wide. It's based on an actual true story. Washington and another guy were vying for the affections of a young lady, and so Washington bet the other guy that he could skip a rock across the Rappahannock, which was 100 yards across. So skipping a rock 100 yards and throwing a silver dollar a mile, that's Mason Lock Weems' equivalent. The other thing is, when we went upstairs to where Washington died, we're standing there looking at the bed, and everybody's looking at the bed, and they're teary-eyed stuff, and I'm looking at the ceiling, My wife says, what are you doing? I said, I'm looking at how well they patched the ceiling after the angels pulled him up through the sky. Because that's what Mason Lock Reams records, is that the angels came down and just pulled him up to heaven right there. Um, So you got a lot of interesting stories in Mason Lock Reams. One of them is this one, the Valley Forge story. Here's Bishop White, the overseer of the local churches Washington attended. I do not believe that any degree of recollection will bring to my mind any fact which would prove General Washington to have been a believer in the Christian revelation. His own minister, Samuel Miller. How is it possible for a true Christian to die without one expression of distinctive belief or Christian hope? Is that what you want at your memorial service in the chapel here at Grace Church? You You want a pastor of your fellowship group to get up and say, I can't think of a single thing that would make me think I was a believer. And they had obviously had no reason to besmirch him, right? They had no reason to say something false. Why should we believe Washington was a Christian? What's the evidence for such an idea? Uh, Michael Novak wrote one of the many books in, in this category called Washington's God, in which he's trying to prove Washington was a Christian. But he concludes at the end, this is his book, to prove Washington was a Christian. And what does he conclude at the end? Page 159, overpowering evidence for his commitment to full dress Christianity is not to be found in the printed record, that he was a very good man in his moral life, stayed well within the bounds of Christian moral imperatives, and fulfilled a high, very high measure of nearly all Christian virtues is testified to by many witnesses. That's the basis for him being a Christian, but not full dress Christianity Whatever that means, presumably means Christianity. He says also, still, the stated beliefs Washington lived by fell rather short of the full Christian creed. To confess the latter, to confess a full Christian creed, would have required very little of him, yet he evaded the many invitations offered him in public and in private to do so. And what about this term Christian? Here's a book written by a guy I debated on the radio once. um, And he says the term Christian can be used in two contexts. First, it can describe someone who is born again or saved or regenerate, a dedicated follower of Jesus Christ and his teachings. Eh? Thumbs up? The term Christian is also loosely used to denote a person whose beliefs about God, the world, and man are generally in accord with those of the Christian religion, but who may not be a dedicated follower of Christ. In the second context, a person's beliefs, actions, and or demeanor may be Christian, that is, decent, generous, or moral. This is what he's in here, I didn't add this. But he or she might not be regenerate. In the chapters which follow, the term is used primarily in this latter sense. And now, the Founding Fathers. And then he proceeds to talk about the Founding Fathers as if they're Christians. Because they were decent, generous, and moral. And believed in God. So, the key founders were religious men. They believed in God. They went to church, most of them. Uh, They prayed, most of them, so on and so forth. They believed religion was extremely important, indeed critical to the health of a free society, but not necessarily Christianity. They believed religion and morality were fundamental pillars of society, but that virtually any religion would serve the purpose. Now let's take a look at Alexander Hamilton for just a moment. First of all, I can't leave him out because he's my favorite founding father, but Hamilton, there's two Alexander Hamiltons. There's Alexander Hamilton up until the day he dies, and there's deathbed confession, Alexander Hamilton, which is a great story, and I don't have time to tell it. (laughs) Here's Alexander Hamilton when he was in political power and moving and shaking and so on and so forth. Here's what he had to say. He was talking about a particular minister, a particular preacher, and he said, he's just what I should like for a military parson, except that he does not whore or drink. He doesn't sleep with whores, and he doesn't drink. Other than that, he's a good, good, good parson. And also, he will not insist upon your going to heaven, whether you will or not, whether you want to or not. That's a good, good parson. He didn't speak of Christ. He used God words, such as imp- supreme intelligence, omnipotence, benefactor, etc., and he equated God with nature. Sound familiar? Declaration of Independence. Equated God with nature. What about... All right, so I'll I'll give the Reader's Digest Clip Notes version. So some of you know Hamilton died in a duel with Aaron Burr, which is an interesting story to begin with. But um, Hamilton had begun... Investigating Christianity after his own son was killed in a duel, and he whether he came, became a Christian then or later is an interesting thing, but nonetheless he became interested so at the time, dueling was illegal in the United States, and so it was if you sh- actually shot somebody in a duel, you were proving what you were trying to disprove, that is that you didn't have honor. So what they came up with was this goofy system in which you would stand back-to-back, walk 10 paces, turn, and fire into the air instead of shooting the other guy. And that would show that you were putting your own honor at stake on the line because he could shoot you, but you're not doing the dishonorable thing of killing him, right? So Burr and Hamilton... Hamilton tried desperately to not have the duel with Burr. Burr wasn't having it. He was going to do it. So during the two weeks between the challenge and the duel, Hamilton writes all these letters, putting all his affairs in order, Writes two very poignant letters to his wife the night before the duel, saying goodbye, honey, I'm going to die tomorrow, have a nice life, watch over the kids, and so on. But he also tells her I'm going to reserve my fire, meaning do the the, he says, but I'm quite sure that Burr will not, and so that's why I'm telling you I'm going to die. So they meet, they stand back to back, they walk to ten paces, turn, Hamilton fires first, he fires up into the air, as is the honorable thing to do. Burr Points his gun up into the air and then lowers it and shoots Hamilton in the chest, right next to the heart. And they know it's a mortal wound, as they used to say, meaning you're gonna die, and they drag him over to a farmhouse. So in the farmhouse, he asks them to send for a minister to give him communion. And so they call a minister, he comes in, and the minister who I want to meet in heaven, the minister refuses to give Hamilton communion on his deathbed. You're not a believer. You're not a Christian. I'm not going to give you communion. And he leaves. So they call another minister, and that minister won't give him communion because his church would not allow individual communion. It had to be done in a body. So he left. So Hamilton begs them to call the first guy back. And the first guy comes back, and Hamilton proceeds to convince him that he's a believer. And the guy writes it all up in the newspaper. Okay, You can read the account. Here's some of what he says. Some. It's a long thing. He placed his hope for the next life in redeeming grace and divine mercy. He said, I'm a sinner. I look to his mercy. I have a tender reliance on the mercy of the Almighty through the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not a theistic rationalist talking anymore. This is a believer. And then he sought and took communion shortly before he died. One of the keys in this whole area is what did they mean? Christian America advocates take the use of the words Christian or Christianity at face value and then quote them to evangelical born-again Christians despite the fact that the person being quoted meant something entirely different than the audience understands by those terms. Now you know differently too. Adams, Jefferson, Franklin, and others had their own definitions of Christianity which rejected virtually all of the core doctrines of Christianity. What about the Declaration of Independence? Uh, The much-trumpeted God words are not biblical terms. The only biblical term you find in the Declaration of Independence is the word creator. And everybody believed in a creator back then. Deists believed in a creator because there there was no Charles Darwin. Everybody believed in a creator, so that's not controversial. What Jefferson did... And he was a clever guy. He artfully and cleverly wrote the declaration independence language on religion in such a way that every group could be happy and could all claim it said what they wanted. So they would all what? Support it. He's a politician. He's trying to get support from everybody. So today, Christians say, see, the Declaration has all this Christian language. Deus, the equivalent of it, a secularist today, says, see, it's all secular language about nature and nature's God. And Jews are comfortable with it because it talks about the Creator. Everybody's comfortable with it. That was the way Jefferson wrote it. There's nothing distinct in it. The emphasis is on reason. He talks about self evident truths. Those are truths that you decide on your own, they're evident to yourself through your own reason, which is the way they conducted everything. Um, so, okay. So Christians read Christian content into it that isn't there. It's an honest expression of the political theology of theistic rationalism. What about the Constitution in general? First of all, it's godless. This was one of the things, when the Constitution was sent to the states to be ratified... One of the major complaints, there was about six major complaints from the anti-federalists, those who didn't want the Constitution ratified. One of them was that it was godless. It didn't mention God. It was the first, by the way, founding document in history, to my knowledge, uh, in the Western world, that didn't mention God, Um, much less a Christian God It doesn't mention God at all. There was little reference to God in the Constitutional Convention, none to the Bible, no quotations on principles. They did quote some stories in the Bible to illustrate something that they were talking about, but nothing that was no principles were based on it. Um, there's no mention of Bi- the Bible in the Federalist Papers. 85 essays written by Hamilton, Madison, and Jay to explain the Constitution, where they got the ideas for it, what they meant, so on and so forth. There's no mention of the Bible. Uh, God is mentioned twice, one of which is an ancient Greek God. Uh, and the, the, another, the other time is when Madison is explaining that the Bible is written blurrily and you can't really understand it. <laughs> so that's not very, not very advantageous application to God. Um, God words are used five times, never regarding any principle or influence. My contention, this is controversial, but I'm sorry, my contention is that they could afford to grant freedom of religion, because they didn't have a horse in the race. They didn't care about doctrines. They didn't care about different denominations and so forth. They wanted religion, and they didn't care what it was. They were indifferent toward particular sects and doctrines. And so this was really an establishment of religion, their own religion. They were really establishing theistic rationalism. In specifics, there's a no religious test clause which is easy for those who don't have any firm doctrines. To say that you don't have to have any firm doctrines to hold, a, hold a, an office. Um, they just need good and moral men. There were other means of achieving that, like the oath of office. They thought the, the, to them the oath of office was important because oaths in those days were taken as important because you were making an oath before God. The Sunday's accepted phrase, much is made of this, that when legislation is given to the president... Then it starts a 10-day clock, and whether the president has to deal with it. Sunday's accepted. They skip Sundays. They don't count. Uh, that was not because they were Christians. It was because they recognized that people didn't conduct business on Sunday, because the culture was generically, nominally Christian. It was... It was uh, anyway, um, and so people didn't do business on Sundays. There's no indication of significant meaning. I went through all of the discussions at the ratifying conventions and the constitutional convention they never made said anything about it it's just they just did that as an automatic and then the date at the end says in the year of our lord that's just the way they did dates then <laughs> there's nothing significant about that it would have been significant if they hadn't said that i guess but um and it's just the way they did dates and i went through again the convention notes and the ratification notes and no one ever said anything any significance that's just the way that they Described dates. Why is the Christian America idea popular? Mainly because those who promote it are not historians. Or they're self-proclaimed historians who are making a profit. I won't mention any names, but some people have become literally millionaires um, through promoting the Christian America thing and selling tapes and books and doing seminars and speaking at conferences, blah, 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 blah. I debated a guy once whose whole, his whole livelihood is taking people on Christian America tours of the Northeast, and he called me, the, I don't know how he got my number, he called me the night before, and he said, you know, I'm really looking forward to tomorrow and what you say, because I don't want to be doing something wrong and false, and I'm thinking that's totally disingenuous, because if you actually do take what I say, and re- then your whole, your whole career is gone, <laughs> but anyway, and he didn't, of course. Um... So there are self-proclaimed historians who aren't trained historians. They don't know anything about historiography, um, making a profit. And then there's lawyers. What, any lawyers in the room? What's the lawyer's job? To take your side and win. Is it, a, is it an unobstructed search for truth when someone hires you to be their attorney? No. Uh, and so uh, that's probably... And then pastors who... Bless them. Um, often aren't very good about history. And they, let's just say they're like most people, they, they, they know popular history, you know, like Thanksgiving. Oh, did I just say that original Thanksgiving never happened? Oh, I'm sorry. Um, don't hear that. Um, they know popular history, history the way people think, you know, that is kind of passed along and they trust. They trust some of these self-proclaimed historians and lawyers and just copy them. Human nature wants us to believe, leads us to want to believe that our nation is specially blessed by God. This is not unique to America. The Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor for their god-emperor. The Romans wanted the gods to like them, so they deified their emperor. They cut out the middleman and made him the god. All the great civilizations through history have believed that they were specially chosen by some god. And uh, so there's a natural... I think it's cooked into our nature. I think it's part of satanic plot to make people become so invested in their country that they are willing to overlook things in order to... um, Anyway, it's easier to call people back to a heritage than to call them to something new and radical like biblical Christianity. It's easier to just say, oh, well, we have this great heritage, we need to go back to it. It's, it's nothing new. It's some... And it's, of course, because of frustration with public school history teaching. One of the things that frustrates me is people who think that since when the public school, it, it's people treat teaching history like a tug of war. And you got the rag in the middle, right? And the public schools are t- pulling it over here. And so the way to win the war is to Make something just as false on the other end and pull it the other way, and you'll end up somehow in the right place. No, you'll be ending up in doubly wrong. The way to win is to teach what's actually true, in my opinion. Let me me give you a couple of examples of of how these ellipses work, cutting things out. Page 120 of Myth of Separation by David Barton James Madison is quoted as saying, Religion, dot, 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 is brackets. The basis and foundation of government. Okay, so remember that thought. Here's the thought. Religion is the basis and foundation of government. That's the claim being made. Here's the original of what Madison actually said. Because finally, the equal right of every citizen to free exercise of his religion, according to the dictates of his, is held by the same Ten years other rights. We heard of, uh, The declaration of those rights which pertain to the good people of Virginia is the basis and foundation of government. So religion isn't the basis and foundation of government, and what Madison's saying. The declaration of rights, Virginia, is the basis and foundation of government, but by cutting out everything in between, slicing it up, you can make it say whatever you want. Another thing is common is quotes out of context. Here's a quote of, uh, by John Adams The general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were, dot, 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 the general principles of Christianity. Well, that sounds good. <laughs> the founders achieved independence on the principles of Christianity, which says, by the way, he who resists authority will be. Anyway. Um, Here's the actual quote. Adams listed the types of men who brought about independence, including Roman Catholics, Universalists, Arians, Socinians, Deists, and Atheists, and Protestants who believed nothing. That's his, that's his quote. Then said the general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the only principles in which that beautiful assembly of young men could unite. And what were those general principles? I answered the general principles of Christianity in which all those sects were united. So, universalists, deists, atheists, and Protestants who believed nothing, Arians believed that Jesus was not God but was a specially created being, somehow, somewhat better than man. So, Sinians believed that Jesus was just a man. So, all those people had some general principles in which they all agreed. And Adams calls them the general principles of Christianity. But those who present this view know that their audiences, evangelicals, won't think that all those people actually believe the general principles of Christianity, so they just cut all that stuff out as unimportant. What's important is that Adams said that the principles that they used were the general principles of Christianity. Adams went on to claim that he could fill sheets of quotations in favor of these principles with statements from a number of well-known sources, including two very notorious atheists, David Hume and Voltaire. This was a certain person who's the guru of the Christian American movement. This was his favorite thing for about eight or ten years. He would walk around to churches. He has an original copy of this letter, and he would walk around to churches and flash it and then tell them what it said. A portion of the 1809 letter from John Adams to Benjamin Rush is read in which Adams says glowing things about the Holy Spirit, concluding with, There is no authority, civil or religious. There can be no legitimate government but what is administered by the Holy Ghost. Wow, that can't be what he really said, is it? Yeah, it is. It's there. It's there. It's not by itself, though. Right after this, in that letter, which never gets read in these presentations, right after, right after the rapturous statements about the Holy Spirit, Adam says, although this is all artifice and cunning, yet they all believe it so sincerely that they would lay down their lives under the axe or the fiery faggot for it. Alas, poor, weak, ignorant, dupe human nature. Do you wonder that Voltaire and Payne, notorious infidels, have made proselytes? And then he asked Rush to burn the letter. Can you believe those people believe this about the Holy Spirit? Those ignorant dupes. No wonder the atheists have such a good time rounding up people. Not only did they ask people sometimes to burn their letters, but when people died, people would rush to the widows to get back the letters that they sent, so they didn't make it out into public. Jefferson did that a number of times. Who are the founders? General all-inclusive statements are routinely made, starting with the founders said, the founders believed, the founders wanted, and so on. Uh, But the founders were a diverse group of individuals who had various views about politics, religion, law, society, and everything else. Some reason this is doubling. Irrelevant evidence. Let's talk about. I'm going to let. I'm going to ask for questions in a minute, but I'm going to answer some of them first (laughs) before you ask them. What about the Pilgrims, the Puritans? Well, first of all, you have to understand this. Okay, everybody ready? The Pilgrims and Puritans did not found America. They founded Massachusetts. Okay? Now, and it was 160 years before the founding. Let's go back 160 years. That would be, what, 1862? 1862? Is America about the same? People believe the same things as they believed in 1862? Uh, Anyway, 160 years before the founding. And what most people don't understand is that the Puritans' original vision for a godly... And the Puritans did have an original vision of pursuing God's will and creating a godly society and whatnot. You can debate as to whether they accomplished it or not, but that at least was their vision... But that was all dead by 1700, 75 years before the the Revolutionary War. They were, by this time, involved in the slave trade, rum production, and had done two Indian massacres. These are not your grandfather's Puritans. These are not the Puritans that Steve Lawson talks about and some of these other people. By the time you get to 1700. Eight colonies had no religious element in their founding. So why is this one the one that represents America? Two colonies were founded by dissenters from the Puritans who left because they didn't agree with the Puritans. And there were as many colonies set up by Catholics and Quakers as there were by the Puritans. One each. So I just don't understand this, you know, the, the Puritans and you know Plymouth and whatever that it's that doesn't represent America, and this is another one that's doubled. <clears throat> Early pronouncements. We're told that according to a, a court case Runkle versus Weinmuller in 1796, the Supreme Court of Maryland. Did, oh wait, they don't tell you it's of Maryland; they just tell you the Supreme Court said that America was a Christian nation. Well, that was the Supreme Court of Maryland. And anybody who knows anything about government politics and so forth, you know that state court decisions aren't the same as a Supreme Court decision for the United States. And it was also dicta for people who don't who know what that is. At the next year, 1797, you have the US Treaty of Tripoli, which was passed, it was um, put together by the president and ratified by the Congress of the United States without a dissenting vote which said, the government of the United States of America is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion. It was ratified in the Senate without a single dissenting vote, without protest signed by President John Adams, and two of the signers were people who were at the Constitutional Convention. And treaties are part of the supreme law of the land. So since 1797 in the United States under the supreme law of the land, the the government of the United States is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion. This isn't your fault, Jason, that it's repeating. For some reason it was doing it when I was doing it too. Uh, False quotes. Many of the quotes you might receive in an email are bogus or falsely attributed, including Madison on the Ten Commandments, Franklin on spreading the principles of Christianity, Jefferson extolling Christianity, and Patrick Henry on a Christian founding, if you get any of those, um, they're, not, they're not true. David Barton actually had to admit this on his website. To read more, uh, you could get my book, The Religious Beliefs of American Founders. Um, or a book. The OP means out of print. You can go on a used book site and find the search for Christian America. That's really good, too. Um, I was going to wait, give 10 minutes for questions, so I'm going to go on to, um, two more minutes of stuff. Um, we talked about this one. Uh, we don't need that one. All right, who counts as a founding father? Christian America advocates seem to count anyone living at the time of the Revolution, the writing of the Constitution, or within 50 or 60 years of those times as a founding father. Give a couple of examples. They say the American Tract Society was started by founding fathers. It was started in 1825, 36 years after the founding, and no one listed as a society founder signed the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution or played a significant role in the founding. In fact, few of them were alive, as we'll see in a moment. They uh, were told that Vidal versus Girard, a court case, was in the time of the founders, 1844. The last living framer died in 1836. So somehow all the framers are dead, but this is in the time of the... Uh, John Quincy Adams was eight at the time... Oh, this is good. The claim 52 of the 55 delegates of the Constitutional Convention were, quote, orthodox evangelical Christians. You know what the evidence for that is? The table of contents of this book in which he lists the 55 people and gives a denominational affiliation for them. One of the huge things in this whole Christian America thing is massive, massive over production of denominational affiliation. John Adams is, I have a, I have a good friend who wrote a book in favor of the Christian America thing who's, who calls John Adams reformed. You saw what he, what he believed, right? But he's reformed because he went to a congregational church. Congregationalist. And By his own account, that Congregationalist church became Unitarian when he was in high school age. So it was Unitarian, but it retained the name Congregational, so that makes him Reformed. I mean, this is the way these things are. Um, The only evidence is this table... And by the way, the guy who said it, he says that's the evidence for it. This is what he says is the evidence for it. Um, And to get to 52, even using this, you have to count the two Roman Catholics. 86% of today's Congress meets this standard. So what's the problem? (laughs) By the way, on that person's website, I'm liable, I mean, talked about on there, in which he says that I say, because there was a a guy who put together a group of of 10 uh, Christian historians across the country, and they asked me to do part of it, And I was supposed to do this one video from this guy, which I did. And so I answered what he said in the video, which is this claim up here. 52 of the 55 delegates were Orthodox evangelical Christians. So I answered that claim and said, no, they weren't. And I proved it, blah, 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 blah. On his website, he says that I said that I I denied that 52 of the 55 delegates went to Orthodox evangelical churches. Because he has now changed his thing on it because it was so evidently provable the other thing was wrong, he changed it. And so he says that that's what I said, but that isn't what I said. And, but anyway, that's the way these things happen. And by the way, I would actually say that. They weren't all orthodox, because you have to count the two Roman Catholics to get there anyway. But aside from that, it isn't what I said. Um, I talked about this one already. Uh, One of the tactics is to treat all court cases as equivalent. So you take a state court over here from someplace and count it as equal to a Supreme Court decision. Um, uh, Whatever. (laughs) (laughs) I've got more if nobody has questions. But uh, questions... Give me a chance to drink some water. Yeah. So I see how you essentially demolished the idea that most of the founding fathers were to the Christians. What about the idea that... What about the idea that... Yeah, yeah. Um, I have no doubt that God's hand was involved because I believe that God has a plan and everything goes according to that plan. So no, there's no doubt, there's no question that the United States was supposed to be a nation, that the, the United States, the Americans, were supposed to win the American Revolution, etc. Does that make them specially blessed by God? Well, then you've got to explain that to the ancient Greeks and how they won the Battle of Salamis, and you've got to explain it to the Spartans who had one of the worst... Cultures in the history of mankind and lived and lasted 800 years, and had all these miraculous things. God works through history. It doesn't make the people doing it believers, and it doesn't make the system itself believe a believing system or a Christian nation or whatever. God works through nations. Thank you for that presentation. So. Moving forward, what prescription would you give to a Christian and politics um, without the fictitious past so moving ahead in the church? Yeah. Um, well, I'd, I've spoken on that a number of times here in various fellowship groups. But how to b- live biblically in political society. Um, there are things that we are, we are told. To, first of all, it's perfectly appropriate to be involved in politics. No problem. I, I wouldn't have my job if I didn't think so. Daniel, Joseph, you know, they're involved in Paul poly- That's fine. Um, the key to it, and there are certain things you, we must do, that God, the Bible tells us to do, like to be subject to authority, to be obedient except for one exception, uh, to pray for our government leaders, uh, etc., there's a number of things. There's things we must not do that the Bible distinguishes as well. Um, But the bottom line is, to make a very simple answer to your question, is where's your trust? Where's your trust? That's the bottom line. Do you trust the political system? One of the dangers that I have on my handout here is by trying to make the American political system somehow Christian, etc., then it causes people to put their faith in the system rather than in God. And I think that's one of the big dangers of it. Fundamentally, where's your trust? Do you think that the country would be straightened out if we just got one more Supreme Court justice? <laughs> or do you understand that the Bible says in John 3.19 that men love the darkness? That's why we have problems in our society, because people are sinners, not because we, there's some flaw. If we had one more senator or one more Supreme Court justice, then all would be well. Um, Yes. Okay, so the United States is freedom for the the Quakers here. Yes. Risking their lives and worshiping God. I think that's providence. Probably... Well I do. I. I don't. I'm not. I just said I believe in providence. I absolutely believe in providence. By the way, Deists believe in providence too. But anyway, I believe in providence. No question about it. God acts, God acts in history. The God of the Bible acts in history. Okay? One of the interesting things about the Puritans is they came here because they were, they were being uh, mistreated and so forth, and then they came here and they, and they wouldn't allow anybody else to have any freedom in their colony. They didn't allow the freedom that they wanted in their colony, which is why the dissenters had to leave and so on and so forth, which is all, also God's providence. Um, it's all God's providence. Everything that happens is God's providence. Who are some founding fathers and presidents, if any, you think more true? Oh, good question. Um, yeah. So I talked about the eight, the eight key founders. If I were to go to a ninth one, the ninth one was, a, was an Orthodox believer. That's Roger Sherman from Connecticut. Um, so Roger Sherman, John Jay, who was one of the three writers of the Federalist Papers. He wrote five of the Federalist Papers. Uh, John Witherspoon who signed the Declaration of Independence, um, and a few others, um, depending on who you talk to. Um, So those guys, for sure. Uh, Presidents. (laughs) Do you want my opinion? It's just my opinion, because only God knows. If not, I just do not... Yeah. I want your okay. So I have a good friend who teaches in another school who is convinced that Ronald Reagan was a was a believer. I take his word for it. I think some of the evidence he presents is pretty compelling. Um, I thought George W. Bush was when he became president, and then some of the things that he said and did while he was president caused me to doubt. Um, it's possible. It's possible that Jim Carter is a president? I mean, a Christian? Because his politics, totally aside, um, William McKinley might have been a Christian. I think there's some evidence for that. Eisenhower? No, 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 no. As a yeah, in a false church. Uh, no, Eisenhower is famous for saying that um, he wanted everybody to go to church, and I don't care which one it is. You know, uh, he was. He was a Midwestern, I grew up in the Midwest, so I know this quite well. He was a Midwestern, don't don't rock the boat person. We have three more in a queue on this. So this might be a bit of a loaded question, but um, if we wanted to investigate further, like just history of our country or before the country was founded in general, but want to make sure we're having trustworthy resources to do so, because I can remember even in like home school and private school settings, there were still like half-truths and just not true concepts being circulated, so what would be your recommendation of where to go to find resources that are accurate? Okay, so... Fun little tidbit, so uh, a couple of years ago, Bob Jones, University Press, asked me to be the copy, the content editor for their new American history textbook. So whenever that comes out, you can get that one, and it's all right, because I, I approved it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll tell you the same thing I've told people for years, and it's not, very, it's not very satisfying, but the safest way is to buy a U.S. history textbook that was printed before 1970. It used to be that textbooks were written by actual people in the field who didn't have a particular bicycle to ride. They were just just presenting the way it was. And so that doesn't help you with history since then. But um, yeah, there there are some things. If you wanted to email me, I could give you some things, but they're not coming to my mind right off the top of my head. Uh, yeah, so I was just have a question. What was uh, do you think that the American Revolution was a violation of Romans thirteen one through seven? The passage where it's about every person being subject to governing authorities. Absolutely. Re- uh, Revelation thirteen two. He wo- he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. That rebellion period. Rebellion throughout the Bible. The, the word rebel or some form of it is used in the Bible 107 times, all negative. Um, it does, you, can argue, you can argue whether the Americans were in such a crucial, that they were being tyrannized as they said and George III was a tyrant and whatnot, which is just on the surface of it, goofy. It's just silly. Um, you know, the, the tax on tea, First of all, you had to drink a gallon of tea per day for a year to pay a dollar in tea tax. Secondly, you didn't have to pay the tax at all, just don't buy the tea. Um, and the people in England were taxed much more heavily for to pay for the American Revolution, or excuse me, the, the French and Indian War, the Seven Years' War, than the Americans were. All the Americans were asked to pay for was the, to support the, the forts that were on the border between them and the, and the Indian and French colonies, he, they were asked to pay for their own protection. That's what the Stamp Act was about. Um, I mean, I could go on and on and on, it, but it, it doesn't matter. All that's irrelevant. Let's say that George III was the worst tyrant in the history of mankind. Let's say he was Nero, who, there's, you know there's a religious school that believes that Nero was the Antichrist. Those who don't believe in a future... They think all the, the prophecy is already fulfilled. They believe Nero was the Antichrist. That's how bad he was. That's who the emperor was when Paul wrote to the people in um, Rome and said, be subject to authority. There's no authority except from God, and those who resist are, are resisting the ordinance of God. So it doesn't matter how bad the tyranny is if it is tyranny. Rebellion is not biblical. Biblical. Doctor MacArthur says the same thing. I can show you in the commentaries, but anyway, that isn't why I think it. I think it because know, Paul said it. But Jason is some of your. Oh, and by the way, so yes, I think the American Revolution was sinful. It was also God's plan. It was part of God's providence. Okay, just like Judas kissing Christ and betraying Christ was a sin. And it was better if he had never been born, but it was part of God's plan. Just like Adam and Eve eating the pomegranate to start this whole mess. It was a pomegranate. Adam and Eve eating the pomegranate to start this whole mess was a sin. Obviously, it's the original sin, but it's also God's plan. So just because something is God's plan and that it's part of providence and stuff doesn't make it good. It doesn't make, I mean, good in the sense of your participation in it. It doesn't make your participation in it right. Your participation is still wrong. God uses what Calvin called the instrumentality of the wicked. He uses the instrumentality of the wicked to accomplish his purposes. And just because something miraculously happened in favor of somebody doesn't make it the right thing to do. It just means God used it to accomplish his purposes. Just like when they tried to kill Hitler with a bomb, and he miraculously survived it, and he said, see, God's on my side. No, God wasn't on your side, but it was by God's plan, it wasn't time for you to die yet, so they can't kill you. But it doesn't make it right to be Hitler. I'm sorry, I get enthused about this. No, not really. Um supplied he had it translated in English because it was only produced in Arabic and it was apparently blasphemous for um an Islamic person to own something um other than an Arabic. So the question was if you knew about that and if there was any religion that the founding fathers detested at Yoruba. Yeah, Adams and Jefferson detested Calvinism. They use that word, detest, about Calvinism, uh, but no, they and they. By the way, they they read widely. Some people will try to tell you when they said the word religion, they meant Christianity, and yet Madison, you know, in his famous um, law that he wrote for Virginia, talks about religion and Christianity separately, and and it's obvious that they don't mean Christianity. Anyway, um, so no. Pretty much, they believed all the religions that they were familiar with uh, taught morality. And that's what mattered to them. At the start of the, uh, I'm sorry, you said, that you believe on the caveat you believe that America is the best nation, the best, best governmental system yes. um, ever created. It seems to me today that a lot of rhetoric kind of push against that. Aware of of oh, yeah. Um, yeah, well, it, you know, it's, it's nothing new. It goes, back to, it goes back to John 3.19. People have their own agendas to make themselves powerful or to make themselves wealthy or to promote things that they want to promote, uh, to give themselves 15 minutes of fame. Um, and we've always had them in the past. We just have never put up with them before. And now we do for whatever reason. I know what the reason is, but i don 't want to say, uh, so we put up with them now, uh unlike what used to happen, and so that's what's that's what 's different um, and uh, it's not good, uh, but it's also not the cause of all of our problems. The cause of all of our problems is that Americans are sinners and um, this is just one expression uh, politics is one expression of people's sin or Vice versa. Um, So people ask me sometimes, how many years do you think America has? And (laughs) I I, I said, when I was debating that one guy on the radio, that was like 30 years ago, I said the same thing I say now, which is, I don't know. That's God's plan. The Spartans got 800 years. And they were... (laughs) People say, "Oh, you know, how terrible we are. You know, God's got to bring judgment." Well, He didn't bring judgment on the Spartans for 800 years because there's no necessary link between the two. It's, it's God's plan. God has it all laid out. When he, he when He talked about Nebuchadnezzar, He said Nebuchadnezzar will be ruler, and then his son, and his grandson, and then that'll be it. For the Babylonians and the Assyrians will take over. I mean, Scripture is pretty clear. So we may have dark days ahead in America. <laughs> Uh, and it, it'd be like the first time, except for, except for black people and Indian people and Japanese, during American citizens of Japanese descent during World War II, it'd be the first time for most white Americans that they have to suffer um, in America. Um, and that's why people are upset, because they don't like to suffer. That's why, That's what the handout was for, uh, to show all the dangers of believing that America, or not the dangers of believing that America was founded as a Christian nation, if that were true, but falsely believing that America was, was founded as a Christian nation. It has has theological implications, which I lay out in the beginning of that sheet, and then it has some practical implications for people uh, who, um, they don't, If you're a Christian American person, I'm not saying this about everybody. Some people, some people who get heavily invested in this, they believe in a tribal God of America. They don't believe in the God of the Bible. And America is too intertwined with their notion of Christianity that they can't separate it. And so it becomes almost national idolatry. Um, And that's why Dr. MacArthur cared about it, why he wanted me to talk to Grace Church, because of these dangers. So, uh, and and this... uh, and we believe in truth here. Uh, We teach truth from the Bible, and we should deal with truth in history, truth in other areas as well, science, whatever. Um, So, and because people, again, are making political careers out of this and making big bucks, manipulating people, that bothers me because I'm not making the big bucks. <laughs> <laughs> just a, a sign on what you were talking about. Excuse me. So just look over that sheet that I handed out, those like 13 or 12 or whatever it is things. Those are the key things. And then the backside, by the way, is my, my notion of theistic rationalism, what I believe they were, and how it differs from Christianity, deism, and so on, which we didn't get time to go over. Um, To be honest with you, what happened was early, when I was teaching high school, like in the 1800s, um, (laughs) when I was teaching high school 40 years ago, we used to have to go to the Association of Christian Schools International Conference, and I ended up teaching a number of the sessions of that later, but we had to go to that, and I sat in, these two guys had written a book, and it it was supposed to be about the history of America, so I was history teacher, say, so oh, well, let's go listen. And I'm sitting there going, that's not true. That's not right. No, no, that isn't. And, I'm, and almost everything they said was just, you know, and, and their histori- here's, historiography is great if you open the book. You know, they'll say, they'll insert themselves in their book and they'll say, you know, we were sitting on the porch talking about such and such and the wind blew and opened to this passage. And so... Um, So that's what originally got me interested in it was I didn't know these people were out there, and and this book was wildly popular in Christian circles, and every year they filled out the big thing at the ACSI about it. And I finally challenged the manhood of the president of ACSI to get me to be able to speak, to give an alternate voice. And so they weren't willing to set me up by myself, so they put me up against this other guy to share a seminar. And, um, And so... You know, he did his thing, and then I answered every single thing that he said and showed how it was wrong, and then he just ignored that and went on and did his next thing, and then I answered everything he said and showed how it was wrong, and he just... So it was an interesting seminar. Um, Packed out, out the door and lining the walls and everything, and afterwards I had this big line of teachers at Christian schools who came up to me, and they said, you know, I know what you're saying is right, but if I say this, I'll get fired. My principal will fire me. People want to believe it, and I think, um, anyway, that's what got me interested in it. (laughs) Well, we're way over time, but, um, and my voice is gone, so, all right, thank you.